the world works in certain ways until a new great idea comes along and changes everything. We need a name. We. We live. We dream. We work. I'm Travis Kalanick, and I will never back down from a fight. And if no one wants to believe in me, I'll make them believe by being undeniable. These kids don't overthink. They don't get bogged down about the way things have always been done. They want to change things now. Hello and welcome to the finale of Still Watching Downfall of the Startups. I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. I'm here today with VF Awards Editor Katie Rich. Hello, Katie. Hello, Richard. We're back to where we started uh, so <laughs> many weeks ago. Well, what have we learned? We, I hope we, we, I'm sure a lot. We can talk about that. Um, I'm so, a billionaire now after all of this, so I oh, hope you, too, you are too. I, I think in uh, in theory, but it's not liquid. I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to remember all these terms. <laughs> You're suing SoftBank <laughs> to make sure you get your billions. Yes, exactly. So uh, just in case people aren't aware, today we are talking about the last episode of We Crashed, the one with all the money. Katie, is that a Friends joke? <laughs> As you said that out loud, because it's a, it happens in the uh, episode, too. You hear um, you hear the SoftBank executive uh, say it at the end, too. But uh, I'm just going to assume that he was making a Friends reference. Yeah, I think Friends is big in Japan. It's big the mm-hmm. world over. Yeah. Later in this episode, we'll have Katie's interviews with uh, Emily Jane Fox, who is a writer here at VF. Um, who knows quite a bit about the WeWork fiasco. Uh, and then O.T. Fag Benley, who plays Cameron Lautner on the show. You know, we, we closed out Super Pumped last week and the dropout the week prior um, and were able to have, or I was able to have with other um, co-hosts, like some, you know, somewhat summative conversations about those series. So I'm curious from you, Katie, now that we've reached the end of We Crash, like, how did it land for you? Like, did, do you feel like it delivered on the promise of the earlier episodes? feel like it was so consistent throughout and I don't know how much you have gotten into the nitty-gritty of this as the season has gone on but I think we both started you know we covered those first three episodes of We Crashed early on uh, and I was so high on the show and I've been kind of baffled by people who have not been as into it as I am which is fine t- t- TV can be different for everybody um, but I have found so much consistent pleasure in this show um, uh, in a different way than The Dropout which I think is also very good in a different way from Super Pumped uh, and I just think through the end like not only the the schadenfreude of WeWork and its collapse have been so entertaining, but Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway. And these last two episodes, I think, do such a great job of centering the show fully around the two of them. And I would watch a whole other season of these two monsters um, ruining other people's lives. Yeah, for me, the redemptive moment of this episode um, and the one that I think finally does deliver on what I think this show is actually about uh, is that very final scene uh, mm-hmm. where we see Adam and Rebecca, they seem to have escaped, not by the skin of their teeth, but with like lots of money chasing behind them, you know, um, <laughs> and they're howling, you know, in the car on the way to the airport. Um, but anyway, they're at the Dead Sea. And then Rebecca gets this call from Masa, who is basically like, oh, by the way, you're not going to see any of that money. So bye. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then she runs into the Dead Sea. Her eyes start burning. His eyes are burning and they're just flailing and she's screaming the money, the money. <laughs> <laughs> that I feel like was what this show was actually about. It was about WeWork, yes, about the specific company, but it was really, I think, about an ethos, uh, a sort of hustle culture writ large that um, that these two people were are really, I think, persuasive exemplars of a lot of bad ideas about money and success that have emerged out of the digital age. And there's that scene a little bit earlier um, that kind of, you know, the format of this episode is really interesting. And we can talk about that where you see her at the dinner table with him essentially saying, like, go leave. It's just money. 
we'll live without it. And he, having grown up much poorer than her, was like, look, you don't actually know what it's like to not have money. Um, but she's really convincing in that scene, even though we've seen so many episodes of Rebecca being so self-centered and not capable of sacrifice at all. Um, and then in that final scene, the veil is lifted again. You're like, oh, yeah, it's just about the money. Yeah. Her saying that, I mean, you know, we have heard real life things close to that like you know having too much money is just as bad as not having enough and it's like no that is absolutely not true um but i i i kind of felt like in that that scene where that's really played admirably by the both actors and then the writing really straightforwardly like Mm -hmm. oh we i think we are supposed to be having this moment of connection with these characters but then you think about it and you're like no rebecca's saying what she thinks an enlightened person should say Mm-hmm. In this moment, but you mm-hmm. kind of you can't imagine really in the back of her mind or not even in the back that she is at all content with the possibility that she and Adam will have to sell their beautiful homes and not be able to go on fabulous trips and not kind of swagger around the world um, as little masters of the universe. Like, I, I don't think she believes it, but she's trying to it's one last act, you know, all the way back to her. Oh, I'm going to be a serious check of downtown loft artist mm-hmm. um, all the way to like, oh, no, I, I, I'm actually, you know, I'm not I'm kind of above money. She's just still lying to herself about this stuff. Yeah. And when you see scenes like um, when she tells the parents that she's shutting down the school, um, which is such a, a nice echo of the um, the summer camp scene in the beginning of the season where all the women are revolting against her. Um, like there's There are people there to call her on her bullshit right away. But the whole thing about their relationship is that with Adam, he's going to buy right into it. And it, it works on him the way that it does not work on any normal person. Yeah. And I think that she realizes, especially in that very frantic final scene, is like, so people are now willing to write nasty articles about me and my husband. People are willing to, to call me an asshole to my face at my own school that she realizes the only thing that protects her and also sort of the only thing that makes her special, that gives her that shine that Alicia, you know, played by uh-huh. Ferrara, alluded to episodes earlier is money. And so at the end of the day, despite all of the big talk about raising the world's consciousness and all that stuff, it was really all that mattered was a ton of money. It's the one with all the money, as Masa tells Rebecca. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I hope that people are watching the show because I think this episode is such a good, you know, uh, kind of sizzle reel of how incredible these two lead performances are. And I really appreciate And sometimes I don't like when they show, you know, in a post credits or whatever, the real people because it kind of it breaks the spell. Mm-hmm. But in this case, you listen to Adam Newman talk and you're like, wow, Leto nailed that. Do you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm no accent genius. Um, and, you know, Jared Leto's accent in Hatsuguchi might have been perfect for all that I know. But I think he he nailed that. And he even more than that, he nailed the like the tone and the rhythm with which he speaks and that like conviction behind his eyes that I think is why people bought into so much of his bullshit all along. And Rebecca sitting right there with kind of this like beatific smile being like, yes, my husband does think I'm perfect. And so do you like that energy that they give off was perfect um, compared to what Hathaway and Leto were doing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, well, A, beatific was the pangram on Spelling Bee today. So well <laughs> done for incorporating that. Um, but also, like, I think that Leto, yes, is getting that cadence right, that certain solicitous charm that worked on a lot of people for a long time. And and Hathaway isn't quite doing a vocal impersonation of Rebecca Newman, but she's getting something ineffable right about it. This kind of there's something appealing it to her for a second, but then you're kind of like, you sit, sit sit back a little bit further and you're like, wait, I don't know. It's just kind of, are they kind of creepy? Like, mm-hmm. w- what is this? And um, I like the moment, you know, in, in the actual episode where Cameron Lautner, played by O.T. Fag Benley, like he 
gives a speech to all these former cultists, I guess you could call them. Yeah. And it's like, guys, let's break the spell. Like, this is insane. Like, so it's it's nice in this episode to have both a reminder of why their charm worked at one point and then also the more cold reality, which is like they that charm will never work for them again. People have the veil has been lifted and um, people like Cameron are willing to say it out loud. And so that means a lot of other people will be, too. Yeah, I know we're jumping all around the episode, um, but I, I've been really fixated on O.T. Fagbenley for a couple episodes. You know, I think it's episode six or seven where he really emerges as the skeptic in the house and going through all of their files. And in that speech, like that's such a hard moment to pull off where he steps up there as just this like really blunt money guy and like not the person who you would imagine yourself rooting for watching a show like this. Um, But you see the room warm up to him as he's giving his speech and he's saying something that I think has become even more popular post pandemic where it's like work is work. Work is not your family. It's not the lifestyle that you want to build It is a place where you're going to make money so that you can live the rest of your life the way you want to. Um, And they they kind of accept it there. But it's almost like you see him paving the path forward. And I'm imagining probably more of what we work is doing now where it's like we are a space for you to work. And that is it. Moving yeah. on. <laughs> Which I think is such a good distillation of uh, a sort of reality check that an entire industry, an entire sort of ecosystem of lifestyle and work uh, th- th- that it's had to have, you know, maybe because of the pandemic or other reasons, but these bubbles bursting and people basically saying, we spent the last 15 years trying to make work in the startup space, especially a kind of identity and mm-hmm. and a calling while also being very mindful of the fact that we could get ludicrously rich off that. You know, you saw that tension in the dropout where in episode one, Elizabeth Holmes says, I want to be a billionaire. But then the tune changes where she's like, no, no, I want to change the world. I want to help ailing people. I want to help the military, you know, whatever, do blood tests in helicopters. And yet, I think as Cameron in this episode really coldly and truthfully delineates, he's like, no, this is just about money. Like, Mm -hmm. put all the other stuff away. Yes, if you happen to love what you do, also great. But like, let's not labor under literally labor under any delusions that there's more to it than than this cold, hard, you know, fact of money. And I think that is really where we crashed succeeds is in diagnosing that broader um, maybe consciousness shift in in recent years away from the startup kind of culty language and more toward like, you know what, Facebook is just a kind of. <laughs> evil capitalist company it's not it, it, they maybe have a some aims to actually do some altruistic good in the world but that's not the chief goal of incidental this kind. yeah because these companies the bigger they get the more powerful they get they kind of become sentient entities unto themselves and they have one mission which is to just like scale and reproduce and grow yeah do you think that it's making us sympathize too much with the finance guys not, not sympathize but you know you get the scene where it's um bruce dunlevy um played by anthony edwards and Who's, whoever the guy who plays Jamie Dimon is is so good at like seeming like uh, a real Campbell Scott, I believe. Oh, it's Campbell Scott. Yeah. No, he's yeah. so good at that like still creepy banker thing. Um, and you're like, oh, they're right. But like, I don't want to be on Jamie Dimon's side. But like in no. this case, I am. Is that is, is it a problem that they're having a side <laughs> with these guys? Well, first of all, Katie, I wish you'd been able to see Campbell Scott as hot Scrooge in a production of <laughs> Christmas Carol that was on Broadway a couple years ago. I believe it, was, it completely. It was really disarming because you're like, I didn't think Scrooge was supposed to be. Like, That's a kind of what his fox. Jamie Diamond is, actually. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I, I think that the weird thing that a show like this does by immersing us in this as, you know, the uh, benchmark guy calls it played by Anthony Edwards, you're toxic. Like we have been immersed in this kind of toxic mindset for, you know, eight episodes now. And 
it's such a refreshing thing to have someone actually not bullshit and just tell the truth. Yeah. And the thing is, is that's coming from people who otherwise I think we would both recognize as maybe not the best people in the world. Yeah. Yeah. There's really something about just like being frank about what it is that you're doing. And you're right that like that whole startup culture of like, you know, Slack is going to revolutionize the workplace. It's like, oh, it'll just like make money and maybe make some people's jobs better. Um, And the thing that I've been struggling with throughout all of these shows is watching the like billions of dollars that get thrown at these companies that don't make money and don't make anything like it makes you feel like you're you're losing it. And having Jamie Dimon just be like, you used to hear you heard make money and that's it. Um, It feels refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. It also I don't know. It's interesting. Like now that I feel like we're pretty well versed in, in this world, having watched these three shows and talked about them. I still don't really understand the money. You know, it, it's <laughs> just the, the the numbers are so high that they kind of become imaginary and absurd. Yeah. And maybe they are imaginary. I mean, that's the thing. So like the people who are just like, oh, no, here, I'll write you a check for nine hundred million dollars or whatever. You're like, oh, how does that work? <laughs> like, yeah. what, what does any of this mean? And I think in that kind of these numbers are so big that you can't really comprehend them is maybe how these things happen is because you're moving around in this space that doesn't really even exist. It's kind of virtual in a way. And so yeah. the numbers stop meaning anything. Well, and I think the show does a good job of anchoring some of that in those real people. The, um, you know, the we work uh, workers who we kind of check in more thoroughly toward the end of the season. Um, and the girl, um, Chloe Morgan, who was like the fictional employee we met in the summer camp episode and her Birkin bag. Like, I think, that those are your point of view characters in some way, even if they're not the focus of the show. And you're like, I get I get a twenty five thousand dollar Birkin bag. What that means to a person who's making a salary and the, the kind of heartbreak of the IPO collapsing. Like, I think it's tough for them to emphasize that too much because it's not relevant to the world of the Newmans who is or who we're following. But I think that they they take the time to be like, no, a lot of people really got fucked by this. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I think Cameron does take a hard line on them. He's like, you deluded yourselves. You know, you you were complicit in this. But that feels unfair to me. They were working crazy hours. They were, you know, being underpaid, given how well paid uh, the the founders were were, were getting. And, you know, as we've learned from supplemental material to this show, like the documentary or articles, is that there people were living in we we live spaces and they really had bought into it and then to have yeah. it all collapse and the two people who drove this thing into the ground walk away with however many hundreds of millions of dollars and you literally don't get any of the return on your sweat equity or whatever regardless of whether I think that I would have put myself in that position you do empathize with them because they were just kind of swept up in this culture in a way that a lot of people have been. Yeah, I mean, people get dollar signs in their eyes, right? And in our business, in journalism, like it's not that you don't really really work for an IPO. But, you know, we see people who go to Hollywood and they're like, well, if I'm going to kill myself working, but if I sell one thing to HBO, then that's going to make it all worth it. Like you you put that carrot at the end of the stick for yourself. And the people working for WeWork were very heavily incentivized to do that. And everyone around them was. And Adam Newman, from all accounts, was really persuasive to get people to go along with that. Oh, yeah. Uh, we talked about it last week, but like um, with Scott Galloway, uh, that the, one of the, you know, people calling bullshit on all of this, mm-hmm. um, he in one of the things he wrote about WeWork specifically um, and, and, and in empathy toward the employees, even though they had deluded themselves, was like you get within 30 days of that IPO and you're doing the math and you're like, I could make twenty five million dollars in a month. Uh-huh. It's impossible for anyone to not start spending that money in their head. Yeah. Yeah. Or in, in, in the case of this one employee on a, or in the real world on a very expensive handbag. So I can't say, even if maybe I wouldn't have been swept up by the WeWork culture 
at its inception had I somehow ended up there and then we got that close to, to, to that moment of like, here's finally the payoff, I would have been just as jilted and horrified as anybody else and, and would have felt just as, you know, uh, cheated by the Newmans. You know, I was just going to say, like, you and I both could have gotten wooed by the WeWork, you know, you know, like uh, all the companies that started having blogs for a minute there um, or publishing sure. magazines. But like, did they? They may, they very well, they're, very well may have and they just didn't come recruiting us. Um, but yeah, I would have taken that money probably. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of the now that we're at the end of all of these shows, like. I don't I mean, maybe you feel differently, but I don't think any one between Super Pumped, the dropout and we crashed. I don't think any of these shows is saying this will never happen again because we've learned our lesson. No, no, it's so crazy because they're still just going to like throw whatever they can at the next thing they think is going to make them rich. Right. Because for every five that don't work, one maybe does. You yeah. know, or I think that's literally the business model of yeah. um, what is it, Blackstone, the finance group that's in um, Super Pumped in the show. Oh, Benchmark. Benchmark. That's like literally what they do. They, they, you know, throw money at things and it balances out enough. I mean, and that's what movie studios do, right? Like they sink movies, they sink money into productions and some of them won't make money, but, you know, one of them will be Titanic and then you're rich forever. I, I guess that gambling is what capitalism is. Is this, is this the lesson we've learned? It was capitalism all along. Yeah. And I think it's really horrifying as someone who I, I don't think we really exist in that world. Maybe we work for a big company, but we're it's not that kind of company. Like, yeah. To to see how speculative this all is, like how much of a gold rush kind of casino sort of situation it is. And to know also that that, that those mistakes and those catastrophes do have ripple effects throughout, you know, that, that, that touch on many people's lives. You know, we see Uber drivers, um, you know, kind of brought to ruin on Super Pumped. We see uh, someone take their own life on the dropout. We see, you know, yeah. we, there, there are, there's a lot of collateral damage that maybe isn't immediately evident. And so... It is both enlightening to spend so much time in those boardrooms uh, on these shows, but also really scary because it's like this will happen again. And who knows? It could be even worse. It could be the, the, the big one, you know, and I don't know what that big one would be. But um, if 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 a company is like a, 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 a you know, shared workspace company or whatever can have that that many effects on people like something much more pertinent to everyone's lives could really do some damage. Well, and just for us being close to home, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about something I don't fully understand, but BuzzFeed News laid off a ton of its newsroom and many people linked it directly to their IPO because when you are a public company, your job is to make money for your shareholders, as Cameron mm -hmm. Lautner says in this episode, and news doesn't necessarily make money. And, you know, the New York Times is a publicly traded company, so it's not impossible. But I, I think the ramifications of this um, obsession with making a ton of money off of something that may or may not be real uh, comes around to screw all kinds of things up. I think weirdly about um, that documentary waiting for Superman about charter schools. And I, I have a lot of negative feelings about charter schools, but like what, what that documentary does show at least persuasively is that there are these lotteries, you know? And so everyone, all these parents are desperate, desperate, desperate to get their kids into these charter schools. So they're better than the public schools that are in their communities, but only a few people can get it. And, and w what we've kind of, built ourselves for ourselves in this country is a situation where we accept that the general thing is bad and so we just kind of hope and pray that somehow we get lucky and get into the good thing we hope mm -hmm. and pray that we happen to work for the company where we we become one of the one percent uh as the one percent more and more continues to um distance the wealth gap you know and uh there is you know it's so ironic that that Adam Newman, of all people, came from this collective living on a kibbutz and now yeah. 
is this very me mine kind of mentality and uh, a few lucky few of you I'll, I'll I'll maybe you know throw a line to but otherwise like it's everyone's in it for themselves and um I think that's scary to think about and I think people feel very comfortable in that cognitive dissonance when you're in these you know jobs where you're like we are elevating the world's consciousness or we are doing you know transforming the nature of work and be like well you know I'm using my collectivist background to help people while conveniently getting very rich and that has not changed my perspective at all and I think we crashed um, does a does a good job of of digging into that a little bit without you know solving it because who can really who can solve a problem like Adam Newman truly? Yeah, you know because the in in the the, the scene in the cab on the, or the car on the way to the airport and then you know on the beach like he, Adam is laughs in the car you know because he's like mm-hmm. kind of like we got away with it sort of like we did pretty good all things yeah. considered uh, and then they're howling and Anne Hathaway has a very good wolf howl. I, she I, does. I, I, I know. Very convincing. She's, she's very, very talented. So yeah, I would hope at least that maybe not this show itself, but like knowledge of the Newmans and and what Adam Newman did with that company, like would give the people who are in the position to do this kind of thing with money in the future, like a little bit pause about these dy- of these dynamic founder unicorn people. Maybe that culture has dimmed some, even if the VC you know get rich quick kind of startup scheme has not changed yeah the charismatic cult leader thing is certainly uh less fashionable now than it was yeah (laughs) well let's go now katie to your interview with emily jane fox So you're here not just because you're one of Vanity Fair's, I'd say many, but maybe the best expert on weird rich people, um, which is one of our favorite beats. Uh, but you have very special insight and, and not unbiased insight on We Crashed, but you have unique access to this show. Um, would you like to tell people why uh, you listened to the entire season being written? Well, um, I'm so biased as a, as a journalist. This is so outside of what I would traditionally do, but but it does make sense for a couple of reasons. So my... New husband uh, wrote and co-created and, and show around the show. Um, Lee Eisenberg's my husband, and um, he coined the term for what I call my beat, which is rich shitheads. <laughs> and um, so I have been covering people like the Newmans. I had never written about the Newmans, but I had yeah. been covering people like the Newmans um, since I started being a reporter. Definitely since I started at Vanity Fair seven years ago. And um, I listened to Lee and Drew Cravello write and rewrite <laughs> and rewrite again and then uh, go into production on We Crash because we were both working from home. And yeah. this project sort of started right, I think, like right at the beginning of COVID. And um, Lee is the loudest talker <laughs> on the planet. We have a nine-month-old baby, so it's like a real thing an issue yeah. uh, but he is so loud so i really feel like i heard every single word and every single moment of their virtual writer's room and then all the ins and outs of the production so i feel like i have very special insight and as a reporter <laughs> like it's a totally different thing when you live with a reporter yeah. and uh so i'm listening to all the stuff because i'm just really nosy and it's so cool like i don't know all the downsides of working from home and working with your partner you and i were just talking before we started recording this about um how tricky it is when you have little kids and mm-hmm. your partners are are also working from home but uh it's so cool to have special insight into actually what goes in to your partner's job particularly yeah. when they're like creating a world i lee and i are both writers and people always say like oh cool you guys are both writers what a thing but but 
I like report on what I see and he creates a world and it's such a yeah. crazy thing. This is something that came up with my husband and I, who's not a writer. We were watching it and there's all these scenes between Adam and Rebecca where like really momentous stuff that we know happened in real life happened, like in the final episode where she basically tells him like the money doesn't matter, even though of course the money matters. Um, and he was like, how do they get away with like making that up? And I'm like, they're public figures. You can do whatever you want. But for you as a reporter, I think it must be really interesting watching the person you live with making up stuff that is really juicy and you can do it because it's fiction. That's a, it's a funny line to walk. It is so funny. And um, I know that there's like an extreme legal process to all of this, oh the way God. that we go through a legal process and our stories. He, it's so funny because I literally would hear all of these calls and he'd get off the phone after three hours in the call with lawyers about every aspect of everything for each episode. And he'd look at me and be like, Ugh. and I'd be like, honey, what do you think it's like to close a magazine? Story? <laughs> it is it is exactly the it same is. thing. It's, yes. it's exactly that process. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's so different when you're you're able to take liberties, but they take such great caution. I think that they get into the brains of the characters in a way that I can't really understand. And so they will go back and forth for hours about, well, I don't think that they, they would say that as their characters. I don't think that would be their reaction in a fight. Um, and they do borrow stuff from their own lives and experiences. I've mm. heard, I've now witnessed um, two different writer's rooms from, from home because Lee has um, been in two writer's rooms during the pandemic. One was We Crashed and one was his second season of Little America. And um, they're constantly drawing from their own experiences and their yeah. own bits of dialogue. Um, there are a couple of bits of our relationship that fictional Adam and Rebecca Please have said to each other. tell us okay. if you want to. I'll, I'm... If I want to, I've had no say in this. My, I feel like my, my relationship has been exploited. Well, it's on the show, but we don't know it's from you unless you okay. tell us. I'm, I may get in trouble, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, <laughs> so Lee and I say olive juice to each other. Mm. And uh, I didn't know it was going to be used until it was already in, in the script. Oh, man. And um, I found it both this is a tough one to have like in, in other shows, I'm always so happy when a little Easter egg shows up a personal Easter egg. And in this show, I was like, I don't know. Is it corrupting our like really sweet thing that we say to each other? Cause there's such a weird twisted um, yeah. love story, but, but um, there's something about it. That's very sweet. Well, when does watching this version of Adam and Rebecca make you think differently about, cause you know, you didn't report on we work, but we all kind of knew the story. Like, do you feel warmer toward them than you did the real versions? Have the has the show sold you on them and their their weird love story? Well, I think that they love each other. You know, it's so funny. Um, I spent a lot of time writing and reporting about and thinking about Jared and Ivanka. Yeah, and there's like a weird thing that's similar. Mm -hmm. um, and I think part of it is money, and I think part of it is scrutiny and um, and like damage. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're the, the, the two couples have those three things in common. And the way I describe Jared and Ivanka is that they have these need holes and they fit each other's need holes perfectly. Mm -hmm. Like they fill them their Their need holes are in exactly the same spot because they had fucked up dads and am I allowed to curse? Oh yeah. They yeah. had messed up dads. Okay. Sorry. I, I don't know. <laughs> Go for um, it. It's podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, they had messed up dads. And so the, their need holes are in exactly the same place and they really know how to fill them. Um, I think Adam and Rebecca have that too. 
And so um, I don't feel any sort of warmth toward any of the characters, but I feel they're human. And I think mm-hmm. uh, I say this in, in a way that, you know, I'm biased, but the thing that I loved about the show is um, you're not sympathizing with the characters. The show isn't meant to make you sympathize. And I don't think it does. I think it humanizes them. It makes them three-dimensional. And the fact that they actually do love each other and they do yeah. fill these holes for each other, that's an important part of this story. It doesn't make me like them. It doesn't mm-hmm. make me think, oh, they love each other. So I'm going to root for them. But it makes me feel like I get them as human beings who have been caricatures and all the other things that have been written about them and and the documentary, like they're people and here they are as people and here's how they got to making these decisions. So that's what I think is it's cool about it. Richard and I were talking about this in this episode of like, did anyone learn their lessons from this whole mess? Because we've been talking about the, the downfall of Uber and of Theranos, which are all really different stories. But the the theme is like, rich people gambling um, on all of these people who they think are going to like make them all even richer. Um, do you think anyone has learned their lessons from this mess? No, of course I not. think, well, this is the problem. Uh, well, I think people are, are savvier, right? Mm. Um, I think, and, and also like, uh, I, I will add in the Anna Delvey show to this for a mm-hmm. second, which I watched all of. Yeah. Um, also and- a personal Vanity Fair connection in that. True. Uh, We're all over the place. That's really why I had to keep going. But um, I watched all of this and uh, both of them is sort of like, I kind of could see it happening again. Mm -hmm. I kind of could see, um, particularly on the bank side, that this this would happen again. People get so excited by the notion of a new thing. I think we're past this this unicorn era that we were in. And I see it with companies that I'm reporting on or definitely with founders that I'm reporting on. There's, um, I would never report on a founder the way that we reported on founders when I first mm. came to Vanity Fair. Just mm-hmm. like, it's not cool anymore to be like this, uh, this unicorn startup the way that it was cool before there's sort of like a little bit of an eye roll. Yeah. And like I the don't know leader thing has yeah, gone out of style. I, it's done. And I think, yeah. and like the girl boss era is done. Yeah. There's, there's like very different. I remember uh, the first time I went to Vanity Fair's summit, which is mm-hmm. a thing we used to do. Which Elizabeth is, uh, Holmes was there, I believe. Well, I, I wrote the party report. Oh, And for anyone who's does not work for Vanity Fair, which is the majority <laughs> of people um, when, when Vanity Fair throws, very great parties. I don't know if it still happens, but when I first started here, um, a young reporter or a seasoned reporter, whoever it would be, would have the task of writing a little write-up about what happened at the party, who talked to whom, which celebrities talked to this tech founder and this studio head and whatever. It was actually like a very cool thing, a little intimidating, but cool. So uh, at Vanity Fair Summit, it was in San Francisco and Elizabeth Holmes was at the conference and she spoke on stage and then there were all these parties at night and I was tasked with writing a party report, um, probably for you, Katie, to, to read at some <laughs> late hour. And um, I can't remember if it was the headline or like the lead of the story or it called her the bell of the ball. And basically mm-hmm. the premise of the party report was that everyone was orbiting around Elizabeth mm-hmm. Holmes. But I bet that was true. It hundred percent. See, I don't, I only get to write truth. So it was <laughs> it was a hundred percent true. Like I remember Katie Cork was was around her and all these men were circling around her. And I don't think that that happens today. I, a because mm-hmm. I don't think there's a company that can capture there's there's too much attention. Uh there, there's too many things that you can't capture that attempt, attention the way that you could before. There were, there was kind of 
only one at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, I think the appetite for it is just like, there's a, there's a little bit more of an ick factor with that yeah. than, than a, an awe factor. When I, I, I talked to Nick Bilton earlier in this season and I was reading his, I think his piece on the fall of WeWork and he was talking about geezer capitalists as these guys who are just like chasing the idea of youth and excitement. Um, and that to me feels like it still has to be really true. Like it's not the same like cult of personality, but it's a bunch of older rich people who want to know what young people want to do and will throw money at it. And that kind of gambling is going to always be part of it, right? hundred percent. I mean, until there aren't geezers who are in charge of, of billions and trillions of dollars of money, uh, it won't, it won't be any different. And also you have to think a lot of these people were not cool. Mm-hmm. And, um, in a lot of my reporting, I constantly remind myself that these are like the nerds in school who finally can buy their way into being cool. Yeah. And, um, of course, so much of it around, revolves around profit and is is this going to make them even richer? Uh, but a lot of it also has to do with, is this going to get me invited to the cool kids table? Mm-hmm. And so, I, think, uh, I think that that's just so deeply enmeshed in a lot of these decisions that get made. Um, something specific to We Crash that Richard and I couldn't quite wrap our heads around is Miguel's kind of end of his story here, because I think he's been the nice guy throughout the show and he, st- he sticks with WeWork um, after the Newmans are gone. Um, but he was also complicit in this whole disaster. Um, and I I like the way that the finale emphasizes the friendship between the two of them, that like you would stick by your friend even when he was making all these bad decisions. And I, I wonder from your perspective, either knowing the real story, just how the show did it, like, is that fair to the real Miguel McKelvey? Did we need that kind of like semi uh hero in the midst of all of this um i don't know that the real miguel is thought of as a hero um people like him mm-hmm. people like genuinely have nice things to say about him and i think a lot of the i know a lot of the story moves with miguel are based in truth mm-hmm. um it's so interesting when you have a number two who's such uh this is going to be mean, who feels like such a doormat mm-hmm. and um, and yet stays there despite the fact that he's a doormat. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a little bit of a tricky thing. I think um, the complicity thing is real, but you're also able to, sh- to shirk off bad stuff because you're able to say this was a guy who there was no stopping him. And I, I mean, I can only equate this to, to people in the White House who I talk to all the time in the previous White House, previous administration, yeah. who would say, um, I am the adult in the room. And if I wasn't there, it would have been a hundred times worse. Yep. Right. They said that all every, the time. It was the party line. If I could, yeah. if I could have had um, a fraction of a, of a WeWork, every time someone said that to me, I would be a very rich lady. <laughs> Um, and it annoyed me so much because it's like, you guys are all adults in the room. You wouldn't be working at the White House <laughs> if you weren't adults. Don't like, don't tout the fact that you're the adults. Like it's yeah. such, so annoying. Um, but I think that there's a little bit of that in Miguel where it's sort of mm-hmm. like, imagine how much worse it would have been if, if not for me. Are there any other like production secrets that you Ooh. are curious about? I'm trying to think of what I can tell you. Well, guys. I wanted to. So you, I think you were pregnant, like when the show was in like the the throes of production, right? Okay, so I was extremely pregnant. So we we I got stuck in LA. Uh, Lee and I had been going back and forth between New York and LA, um, 
And then I got stuck here in the pandemic and I had to move out of my apartment in New York from LA. And like, I kind of accidentally moved to LA <laughs> and, um, we, I got pregnant. Uh, I found out I was pregnant the day Joe Biden officially won. Oh my God. And what a day. Lee, truly Lee and I, um, Lee was, was deep in the throes, I guess, of finishing writing. We crashed at that time. Um, and then they started production, like beginning of May. They, they, mm-hmm. that was like the first day of shooting. So we came back to New York. I was eight months pregnant. That's a wild time to fly. Oh yeah. Well, so it's a crazier time to fly back the day, the day you turn nine months pregnant. So <laughs> I was, I was there for about five weeks and, um, production of a show like this is very long and very intense, mm-hmm. um, extremely stressful at times. And so I would be by myself. I mean, by myself, I was in New York and I was working, yeah. um, but I wouldn't see Lee for, you know, 12, 13 hours a day. And then he'd come home and probably work for another couple of hours mm-hmm. and seven days a week. A production like this is a beast. And yeah. you have you have the real stories that you're working so hard to get right. You have major movie stars who are I don't I don't think that I've ever seen Lee work with movie stars like this. Hmm. And so it's a different thing because yeah. they are their processes are serious. Yeah. And they've they worked are, hard to get to the point where they can do performances like this beyond. And, you know, I'm like, Lee didn't talk to, to Jared from like April until the show wrapped. He talked to Adam. Yeah. Um, Adam cannot and, be an easy person to be trying to, as we know from watching the show, Adam Newman's not an easy person to work with. Well, he's just in character and, yeah. and Annie is, I, I mean, I admire what she does and I only, uh, saw this through Lee, but because Lee is such a loud talker, I feel like I, I have really, I would report on it. No problem. If, if it were something I would report on, because I feel very confident that I know what was happening. Um, she is so intensely focused on getting things right. Like her process is crazy. It's like, it's like more scrupulous than I am as a journalist. Yeah. And it's a, I guess I had, I'm naive because this is not the world that I cover, but I had no idea that this is what goes into getting a character right. And I'm making sure that all, every single, every single bag that she carried and sunglass that she wore, uh, every single toy. And I appreciated this because I was buying all the stuff for nurseries at this time, but the toys that were in her nursery that the prop people had, like they had to be right. Oh Yeah. Well, because you and know that Rebecca Newman would be obsessive over the toys that would be in her nursery. Extremely specific. And she, as a, as a mom who knows many Rebecca Newmans, mm-hmm. she got them right. And it was, it was incredible to witness as someone who really hasn't witnessed it up close. Um, but it meant that Lee was working like a maniac. And then <laughs> I had to fly back by myself because I couldn't, I could no longer fly. And I was delivering yeah. in LA uh, and Lee stayed for three more weeks. And um, I actually went into, I, I had, my baby came early and I went into labor like five days after he came back. Um, well, how is your, how are you guys feeling as a household now that the show is over and the final episode's about to air as we talk? <sighs> um, as a household. Uh, <laughs> you can speak for Lee as much as you want to. I, 
I'm not going to speak for Lee. I will, I will speak for me and I will say that um, it's so weird because this has been such a part of our life and existence. And because Lee was working like such a madman to get this right. Uh, it's so weird that it's just like, it's just done. Yeah. Um, but it's such a weird, you work so hard and for so long, I think, I don't know, I've been working on this for like two and a half years, something yeah. like that. Um, the pandemic. Then it's just like, it's just done. Yeah. Um, but I also think that like it li- things when, when they're streaming live longer, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. people come to it. We come to shows that people are talking about all the time, like so late and we just, it takes a while to catch up on stuff and whatever. So I think it lives in a way that maybe like something that is airing on HBO at the time doesn't, doesn't totally live after it's done. Yeah. But it's weird. It's a weird thing. And, and, um, I live with a maniac who is all he wants to know. He's in production on another show right now. And all he wants to figure out is what he's doing next. So, um, it's, it's, uh, it's figuring out what comes next and where the line is. And and the thing that I'm so curious about from him is, do you want to do another show based on real people? Yeah. Because it's a totally different animal. And, um, it is the time where our jobs have been the most similar, mm-hmm. which is cool and also scary to watch for somebody else because I know how hard it is and how much pressure it is to get things right when you're writing about someone who exists in the world. Can I talk about this episode specifically? And I'm going to not know who I want to talk about, but the woman who shows up to play the crisis PR rep. Uh, who is also giving Adam some real talk um, that he might actually listen to. Um, and she tells him, like, you're paying me to be dramatic. That's why it's called crisis PR. Um, yeah. I love her. I want what <laughs> do you know who that actress is? Um, I don't. I'm assuming it's a theater person. I had be- a hunch she must be some kind of like theater veteran. Because, you know, this was a New York production and we had um, Julie White earlier in the, yeah. the season uh as someone screwed over by rebecca mm-hmm. um but yeah she's great and i think that like it that the introduction the brief introduction of of that crisis pr company um is so oh it's kate jennings grant yeah she's a she's a big theater actor See? um it's so funny because even in those short scenes especially when they're in the the, the newman's home and rebecca's running around freaking out about the, the couch and the floors and everything and it, Adam sort of jokingly says, I'm paying you a million dollars an hour, but it's like, maybe he is, is you see, <laughs> here's a whole other cottage industry that has popped up alongside like a remora fish, mm-hmm. these bigger things, and they are thriving off of it. And it just, you get another, a little glimpse into like how, you know, we talk about you and I a lot about award season and how there's a whole cottage industry, shanty towns that spring up <laughs> around every <laughs> award show with parties and brand sponsorships and all that stuff. And it, it's no different with this, you know, a crisis PR company that demands a huge fee can only exist if companies like WeWork exist. And I'm just looking through Kate Jennings Grant's uh, IMDb page, and she's also been in Billions, as has Campbell Scott. I wonder how extensive the overlap is. Like, I know that um, Super Pumped is the show made by the people who make Billions, but as these two New York shows set in finance world, so many billions. As long as there's financial malfeasance, New York theater <laughs> actors will get good TV work, I guess. <laughs> and we can be very happy for them in the process. Yeah, you know, they're artists. They're 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 that's a good kind of profit off of this this uh, terrible uh, ecosystem. Yeah, that's true. They're the ones who are the, the theater, the support of New York theaters, the one true good of um, we work. Yeah, they're the mother courages, you know, carrying their wagons <laughs> through the, the war torn lands, <laughs> selling their their wares. 
Um, how did you feel about how um, Miguel ended in this episode and his arc on the show? Because he, you know, he's the third co-founder of WeWork. He stuck with the company after the Newmans left. Um, and he has this, uh, I thought, this nice little moment with uh, with Adam when we kind of see him last. Yeah, I, I, I guess I haven't really done enough reading into Miguel because he, you know, he's not the dynamic leader that that Adam is and that the show really wants you to pay attention to. But yeah, but Miguel, I, I just, I still don't know, you know, I'm sort of ambivalent. It's like on the one hand, he allowed a lot of this to happen and was complicit in a lot of it happening on the other, maybe because he got invested so early, he felt I can't just leave because I now have a lot at stake here. I think he, you know, has children at some point, maybe well, he um, bought that, um, uh, find some fancy artwork. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, and and I you know he stayed on for a little while later, right? Um, mm-hmm. And then in that coda at the end of the episode, it said the they they celebrated the IPO together. So I guess there's still a relationship there, and and that gives me a little bit of doubt about you know how good Miguel was. I mean, he was definitely portrayed on the show as the more decent one, but maybe maybe that was kind of hiding something. Well, but also that you know when he just tells Adam he loves him, and you kind of feel the genuine affection between them. Like, yes, yeah. he clearly was overlooking a lot of um, bad stuff in that process, but you get why you would stand by your friend even when your friend is being so clearly um, a monster. Yeah, and there's something about that sentiment where it's like maybe you can strip away all of the bad business stuff and and see the person at the center of that. Like, I would hope that. We could all at least extend some of that empathy. And I, I think that's reflected also in, in the scene, the crisis PR scene in the house, when the photos of Adam walking barefoot in the city get leaked and become viral. And everyone's kind of like, what were you thinking? All this stuff. And and Rebecca screams. She's like, he grew up in a kibbutz. He likes to walk around barefoot. Like, what's the big deal? <laughs> you know, and I, kind I was of, on her side right there. <laughs> yeah, I like how that zeroes in on like, look, this is a human being who yeah. does have context and came from somewhere and some of these quirks are not just like meant to grift investors. They actually are a, a genuine organic part of him. And I don't know. Yeah. I think it was nice that she could have spoke up for that humanity briefly in that in that scene. I feel like that's something the dropout did really well, too, in a really different way, because all the things that made Elizabeth Holmes feel human made her just weirder. And, um, you know, what she did feel even darker. Um, but emphasizing that, like, the people who pull off these massive schemes like start from a place of being insecure or like having a thing in their childhood that went wrong that they're trying to fix. And it makes them more interesting and makes what they do more interesting, because if you know the real story, you know how this is going to turn out. Seeing how this person gets from point A to B is what's interesting. And both of those shows did such a good job of tracking that. Yeah. And I think they're they really reflect how you know that 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 culture we were talking about about like making life work and work life and 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 putting this positive spin on things i mean you know a gordon gecko walking into these environments would be like that would be a unicorn you'd be like what is this guy like (laughs) he -hmm. is so nakedly obviously evil (laughs) but we we have sort of evolved for the better or not you know toward a place where we are sort of centering humanity um even if those people at the center are are sort of doing bad or cruel things um so yeah i think that like getting to know the human side of of elizabeth and and adam um is an instructive part of how we look at these companies and what they did and their failures and everything i don't know that i feel that same way toward travis kalanick though yeah do you think you could have in a show that was maybe more interested in doing that to his character 
Yeah, I mean, I was talking about this last week, uh, and I, I think that while I initially appreciated that Super Pumped started in Medias Race, you know, like we, it was not a show about the start of Uber. Yeah. By the end, I was like, you know, I kind of wish we knew pre-Uber Travis a better, or at all, actually, mm-hmm. because it didn't really feel in Super Pumped that there was really a character arc. That show, I felt, was much more about a company, whereas yes. The Dropout and We Crash were much more about the people behind the company. Yeah, these two incredibly strange relationships, really. Like, they're, they're, they're love stories in this very bizarre way, both The Dropout and We Crashed. Yeah, and Super Punch certainly was not that. Even though, of course, you know, there was the real-life thing of Bonnie Kalanick dying, and, and you yeah. know, there, there was actual real, you know, life stuff in there. But um, I don't think that that show was aiming to be the character study that the other two were. Yeah. Let's go now to, Katie, your interview with O.T. Fag Benley. Well, thanks for talking to us. It feels like um, we've been watching you all season on We Crashed, and um, this is gonna be our final episode of the season because this is the final episode of We Crashed. Um, but I feel like this is a great episode to talk to you about because uh, in the We Crashed finale, you have like the both best and worst pep talk in an office that I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because cause it's, it's this great moment of being like, you're just working to make money and get out of here. And everyone is so skeptical. By the end, you kind of win them over. It's, uh, how, how did it feel trying to rally the troops in, in that cynical but correct way? I mean, to be honest, when I first read the speech and it says, you know, in the script at the end of the speech, you know, they're cheering and I'm like, how the hell? That's really, that's a tall task you've asked me to do is to go, oh, by the way, you're the kind of person who signs up to being part of an inspirational cult-like thing. And now I'm just telling you you're going to work for money and get out of it. And then you're going to be cheering. But we had some great direction and, and you know, with some tweaks and stuff. It, yeah, it was a challenge. But it was, it's, he's kind of such a fun part to play. And I feel like, you know, it's easy to have like mixed feelings when you hear him because you're like, you know, you're such a dick. But you're kind of right, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so this my co-host Richard Lawson and I talked about this in this episode where I feel like Cameron has made me sympathize with the finance guys and feel like they're correct. And this happens a lot in the last episode where even you get like Jamie Dimon coming in and being right. And right. I'm like, I don't want to sympathize with these guys because they're the finance guys, but they're the correct right. ones, right? Did you did you feel conflicted about that? How much you can uh, side with them? Well, in, in a weird way, I... The, the high school I went to in London um, was a, a bunch of my friends who are from, from like the middle class Indian community. They all went into finance. Mm. So weirdly, I've got like half my friends are like artists, half the friends are like hardcore capitalist, <laughs> you know, like city boys. And um, and so I've been around them. And, and, and even when I'm with them, I have conflicting feelings. I'm like, oh, gosh, your politics are not in me. But, you know, it's a really nice guy. So, um so yeah, you know, I think that that's everybody. They've they've got a dichotomy in them, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, is this world was this world something you knew anything about before going into this, other than being friends I, I with finance guys? Well, yeah, I wasn't really educated in uh, we uh, work specifically, but you know, I studied economics. I was going to study. I was going to go and study economics at uh, university instead of drama and it's just like a coin flip that that ended uh, me up doing drama so i've always been i'm interested in that world i'm interested in finance but um yeah did so was how what was the learning curve then because you you're charged with a lot of exposition in this especially in some of the like the earlier episodes where you show up of just explaining to people like me who don't know what an s1 is like how any of this works was that a steep learning curve for you right 
Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. But to be fair, I kind of I'm a, I, like I'm a research person. Like one of the things I love about being an actor is it gives me an excuse to research things mm-hmm. I didn't know before. So it's almost like whatever I'm doing, I always do a bunch of research. I, I don't even know how useful it is to my acting. I just like I'm into it kind of thing. So yeah, I did a bunch of research for for it. Um, I mean, listen, don't question me up about it I, you'll expose me but um <laughs> but fundamentally <laughs> though I I feel like my job as an actor yes you have to understand like some of the historical and like technical intricacies but most of the time these are a tool for kind of like character and emotional yeah uh interplay and, and that, that's the thing that I really get into yeah. I mean, I think what's important about Cameron as he emerges as a character in this is that he's like the likable asshole, as we were talking about, and kind of helps tip the scales of being like, because Adam Newman is like the charismatic leader who we've been following as the show goes on. And then this other guy shows up to be like, wait a second, like, this is all bullshit. And you get to be this like really strong, confident presence throughout the show. And I don't know what it's like yeah. to try to, how do you turn yourself into the guy who walks into any room and can like, batten down every doubt or be like no i'm right like i'm gonna i'm gonna run this room that's a um the the confidence you project i think is fascinating oh thanks a lot yeah you know what i mean i guess there's a number of things both as an actor and as a character but i think on you know like boring like actory you know nonsense talk like i i created a backstory for myself which involved my father and blah blah where the adam newman type character was like and like I hated those types of people. I hated mm-hmm. the people who manipulated and 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 stole from people and and you know were all so so going in there, I wasn't going in there trying to project confidence. You know, it sounds like the Freud psychobabble, but in many ways, from the character's perspective, I was going in there to confront my father and I was gonna make mm-hmm. right what I done. And, mm-hmm. and so so I, I immediately I'm going in there was such a, a, a primal urge to, to dominate and to make right that that I guess and then that looks like confidence. But it's yeah. just like, I'm going to, you know. I feel like that fits so much with what the show is doing, too, though, because, you know, with the Newmans, it's showing kind of their like wounds as people and how it turned into what they did here. So you doing that kind right. of character work like fits with the the vibe of the show as well. And I don't know if you talk to the showrunners or directors about that kind of stuff or if that's just something you pull out for yourself. Yeah, no, I, I did that that stuff. I mean, to be honest, I'm surprised I even told you because most of that stuff I don't even talk about ever in interviews <laughs> or to anybody. It's just like, all right, we got an exclusive. You know, Thank just, you. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of like do a lot of kind of because because it, it's because it, I guess I'm fascinated by what draws people to act the way they do, and for the most in most instances, no one thinks they're evil, no one thinks they're doing bad. They think they're doing right. It feels intuitively good to them on some level. They rationalize it. And I think it all comes from kind of some early childhood stuff. So they're just trying to unpin and break apart. Like, what is it that makes someone act like this? Yeah. Um, yeah, but but I don't think it's interesting, to be honest, or necessarily useful to the director or the writer. I think that's just like actors work. Go do it in your little box and then go perform. Kind of yeah, they want you to show up and just do it right. And whatever gets you there is whatever gets you <laughs> yeah. there. Yeah, and also it's sometimes so too complex and also sometimes too personal to kind of unpack with a director. They've got other mm-hmm. things to do with their time. I'll just do my work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's really easy to watch the show and I ha- have, have hindsight of 2020 and say, oh, I would have been like Cameron Lautner. I would have seen through all of this. Um, and I wonder with what you do know about finance, if, if you felt that way doing this or if you kind of understood why people got swept away by the promise of WeWork. 
I mean, listen, I'm such a fool. I'd probably be swept away as well. I love a good <laughs> hero story. Take me with you. <laughs> That's why you're an actor, you know? not an economist, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. That's <laughs> so why the coin trip was my favorite. But I, I guess the question is, though, it's like, how do you how do you know that there's so many things like Netflix, I guess, comes to my yep. mind. There's something which is like improbable. Like if you think about the models of how TV work and they just pulled billions and billions and billions into Netflix. And even till today, but even before now, people were like, this is unsustainable. You're, you're not making as much money as you're spending. Like yeah. how we can accurately tell apart those kind of like excessive exuberance of capitalism and like this unicorn business idea i'm not smart enough to properly tell the difference well and i think it's it's gambling right like i feel like that's something we've come around on this show discussing it like nobody knows and so they just they have enough money to put 100 million in on something and if it doesn't make money then whatever whereas we all learn in high school economics like you have to make more money than you spend and those rules don't apply at this level which feels crazy to me still after watching the show I I know exactly, and you know, and I wonder if you did the autopsy on, you know, I don't want to pick out any companies, but one of these unicorns. If you did it, like, were they absolutely being uh, exaggerating how much they were going to make and exaggerate? You know, like yeah. I, I kind of feel that that's almost part of course of big business and capitalism to kind of do those things. And look, you're talking to someone who's really not that smart about these kind of things. So this is just my outside ignorant perspective. Yeah, that's but, all we're doing yeah. on the show. Yeah. yeah, I feel like this at the end of watching We Crash and we were watching to drop out and super pumped as well about all these different unicorns being like, have we has anyone learned not to do this again? And I think the lesson has just been like, no, people are going to still gamble because when it works out, you make so much money that it's worth it. Yeah. And, and yeah, exactly. I think you're yeah. absolutely right. Um, So you've you have this ending at the same time that the first lady is starting, which I think is fascinating. And I was thinking about the walking into the room of confidence things in the context of playing Barack Obama. And I haven't seen the first lady yet, so I don't know how those apply to each other. But is there any any overlap between these two performances or your approach to them that you can see? Um, well, I don't know. I feel like they're, they're quite different personalities. In But um, it, I, I guess it was it's much more of a challenge. I mean, in a weird way, that Cameron Lautner character is someone that I just have naturally, like, I know that dude. He's in me mm. somewhere. I just have mm-hmm. to go find him. Whereas the challenge of Barack, the technical challenge of Barack is so much more specific and mm-hmm. one that I haven't taken on before because with Cameron, I can decide how he walks and how he talks. I can decide that sometimes he drops his R's and sometimes he doesn't. When does he use a glottal stop or some other technical dialect term? But with Barack, I'm I'm pinned by a very certain kind of architecture, and and so it's it poses a lot more of a technical challenge, and uh, yeah, so I don't know how that affects confidence wise, but but yeah, it's it's a fundamentally different challenge, I think. Well, and on We Crash, you're working with Jared Leto, who is doing a lot of that same kind of trying to capture a well-known real person and that that mm. level of specificity, and you were getting to make up your character, so it's kind of like watching those two different approaches to performance in the same scene when you're working on that show, um, even though I'm sure you guys approach it very differently. Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. And and I look, up until today, I don't really know a lot about how Adam Newman speaks. And I don't know a lot about how he talks and I don't know what he looks like when he walks from behind. We know all these things about Barack. And yeah. I think... I imagine on some level that plays, that would certainly play into me of how much license I would feel 
in playing a character, depending on how well known they were. You know, I still want to be kind of faithful to what I've learned there, but there's so much more room for artistic interpretation, I think, if you're playing, you know, someone who not many people are very, uh, you know, aware of. Yeah. I mean, you've got these two shows we were just talking about. The Handmaid's Tale, I think, is also coming back soon. You kind of are in three shows at the same time where you're like, someone could be like, oh, I know you from, and you won't know what they're going to say next. Um, <laughs> and you've been working for a long time, but I wonder if this is kind of a unique point where you're really spread in so many places and, and making a mark in these different ways and on these different projects. Uh, yeah, I guess so in some ways. I, I I try as much as I can to disassociate myself from the kind of razzmatazz of the industry kind of thing <laughs> like of, of what does that what, what, what does that ultimately mean that I'm on these shows as opposed to like doing some really good plays someplace and um I uh sorry I started getting calls through I don't know how to stop that oh but, yeah um, no I got your uh is that like a airport luggage carousel <laughs> I can't figure out what's in the background <laughs> in your photo uh, um, but yeah, um, wait, I'm sorry, I lost myself. What oh, was just saying? that you're, you know, not thinking too much about people. Yeah, I try you, not I to kind of thing. But yeah, it is in many ways, it is very exciting. And lots of people have, you know, said lots of lovely things, both about Barack and, and about Cameron and we crashed. And so that's always very lovely. Um, but yeah. Did, did being in a Marvel movie make you have to like prepare your brain or like brace for something different just for how incredibly visible those movies are? Yeah, you know what? I think I was actually quite anxious about it in some ways because I'm, not, you know, I, I thought, oh, I don't know, we're not particularly that interested in being famous. I mean, like, it's weird because on some level, like, your fame helps you give access to good jobs, or on other levels, it's kind of going to be intrusive. And so I was like, oh, God, Marvel sounds very obtrusive. But funny enough, it wasn't too bad. <laughs> I don't know if it came out in the pandemic or whatever, but I was, I was ready for the onslaught of fans, and, and it was a trickle. <laughs> Well, yeah. it's when you're wearing a mask everywhere, I think. Like when, when the mask mandates go away and people start recognizing right. you at airports, that's when the um, the onslaught is going to begin. Right, right. You're right. I'll just have to keep on wearing a mask. Um, so we've been covering uh, We Crashed along with The Dropout and Super Pumped on this season. And I'm curious if like any of the other tech shows have caught your attention just as a viewer or, you know, it's comparing the work that you guys are doing. Does the, does the overall like tech scandal saga interest you at all or is it just a We Crash specific thing? You know what? And I, this is going to be very highly disappointing, I think, for people. But but um, I, I don't really watch that much TV. I, I've got such a short attention span. I've been, <laughs> my YouTube has eroded my ability to watch. So, so I, I did make it through um, Station Eleven, which I really mm. enjoyed, which obviously isn't tech. I mean, maybe it's the end of that, tech. That requires <laughs> an attention span, though. You know, Station Eleven, like, you really got to sit down with it to feel the impact of that show. Give you know credit. what? I'm a, I'm a, I, I love the apocalypse genre. The end mm. of the world, dystopian genre is my jam. So yeah. um, I, I, I do watch those. But yeah, so no, I haven't really been, uh, yeah, a part of those tech. Well, well, I guess what's funny to me is that I'm, I do see absolutely the scandal of we work, but I'm like, there is a scandal that, there's not healthcare coverage for so many millions of people. There's a scale mm. of poverty. And I know it's not like whataboutism, but just on the scale of what I think I should actually be outraged by, yeah. we conducted a war. We've con you know, you know, a destabilized country. So like it, it's it's hard for me to get up into a fervor of fury and outrage when, when I'm trying to like 
I don't know, have a uh, a priority list of outrage. Well, yeah, and I think my my theory is that there's so many like huge consequential bad decisions, like you know, starting a war or Donald Trump tries to steal the election, and people and the people who do it don't ever face consequences. And then you see something mm. like the Newmans, where it's a smaller scale thing, but somehow it's easier to be mad at them because they're not as important and it like it can feel more visceral. I think we transfer our anger about larger injustices to these smaller ones and somehow and can get catharsis from that somehow. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. But to some extent, I think that catharsis is dangerous because Mm. what is the point of your feelings if it's not to enact useful action? And so if I'm getting getting all these useful feelings of anger and rage and disappointment and I'm not going to my local counselor, I'm not kind of changing my eating habits or my like instead I'm getting angry at this immigrant or this or this, you know, (laughs) big tech guy. I, I, I just think. I, that's what I'm trying to um, work against, mitigate for in my myself, so I can go. Mm-hmm. All right, let me really try and reserve my outrage for those most outrageous. Well, listen, we work was a big promoter of vegetarianism, which is better for climate change. Like maybe yeah. they, had, they had some good ideas in there of what the uh, excessive drinking and spending and all that stuff. <laughs> I didn't think so. Yeah, I think- and it's like, sorry, go on. Oh, no, just the the idea that now Cameron Lautner, the guy who's the biggest skeptic on the show, now you're like, okay, wait, we work is was great. I, you, you turned me back around. I know, I know. It's it's funny. I, I mean, I thought about that, you know, as I was playing the characters, I was I was like, OT is like, oh my God, this is bad. And definitely, by the way, just because something isn't on the top of the outrage, it doesn't mean sure. we shouldn't do something about it. Like we sure, should sure. face injustice and criminality wherever we find it. But like... Yeah, I, 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 Cameron had to be very upset. And that's why it was very useful to make it somewhat more personal in Cameron's backstory as to yeah. why he would be so triggered by this situation. Yeah, I mean, you think about injustices we face on day-to-day life and it's someone cutting you off in line that makes you the angriest as opposed to the right. larger scale things. So it's always kind of personal <laughs> when it comes down to it, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, that's kind of all I had. I wanted to, um, I know, I think you're in production. So thank you for taking time to um, talk to me in flashback to making We Crashed. Um, it's been really fun to watch. I'm really grateful for all of you guys for making it. Oh, thanks a lot. Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing it. And it's been great chatting with you. You know, I think it'd be interesting to watch The Social Network after all of this, um, which I, as far as I remember, I think I rewatched it a couple of years ago. It's still a very, very good movie and from a completely different time in the way that we think about tech companies and Facebook in particular. Um, but I think that the the way that it handled relationships in that movie was a really similar part of its power between uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Edward Sabrin. And I, I wonder if it would look different having gone through these journeys on these you know longer shows with more recent stories. Yeah. And it also makes you think, I mean, because the social network came out, what, 2010? 2010. Yeah. So Facebook had only been around for like six years. I know. And we've had 12 additional years now of of Facebook really, you know, doing the world domination thing that has a lot of people nervous or or more than nervous. Um, so, yeah, I haven't really watched that movie recently, but I think it watching these shows and then thinking about Facebook, because that's definitely uh, I mean, I don't know how charismatic Mark Zuckerberg is, but he is the sort of single figurehead of this thing um yeah. i wonder where that story if it ever ends will end and and for mark and for the company i don't know maybe we'll be talking about a show about that in 10 years yeah even if this boom of tech downfall shows is is ending now because i think the, these three running at the same time has made it more than a few people be like okay like let's there's other stories right and it's all about uh, real life murders are all the other ones um but that, that story of people who 
have an idea, who go into business together and, and, and their relationship falls apart or changes in some way, that's an eternal story. There, you know, there's been stories about that well before tech companies existed. And I think that there could be really interesting stories to tell about Peloton or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the new unicorn that we don't know about and won't get rich off of will be. Like, th- those will last. Yeah, The Wing, you know. Oh, my God, The Wing. Yeah, I'd watch that movie, yeah, TV right? show. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because I don't, again, I don't think that that this broader narrative of startup stuff is anywhere close to over, you know. Um, no. Maybe the rise in NFTs and cryptocurrencies, which I don't understand a <laughs> single bit, uh, maybe there's that is some sort of sea change that will push, maybe that's more sort of about private investing and less about, like, leading a bunch of people into the promised land. Um, but I don't know if I want to see cryptocurrency dramatized on... <sighs> No, I, I got like a pit in my stomach the minute you brought that up. But here we'll be in two years having um, we'll have Nick Bilton back on again to explain it to us very slowly over and over again until we. Yeah. Maybe get it. Now I want to know what Adam Newman thinks about cryptocurrency and NFTs. Oh, he's probably got a pixel of something. <laughs> the, is it a is a gorilla? A bored chip? ape or whatever. Bored yeah. ape. That's what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everyone should take their financial advice from us, obviously. Yeah. Speaking of, we, you and I, Katie, before we recorded, had had a question about the end of We Crashed. Um, yeah. About just how much money the Newmans got. Uh, because obviously Masa ends the episode by saying you're not going to get any of that money. Um, and then we, in title cards, learn that everyone sued each other, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it does seem the New York Times reported in February of last year and then updated in November of last year. Um, that there there was a settlement reached between Newman and SoftBank, at least. I don't know about Newman and the employees or who, whatever other lawsuits were pending. Um, so apparently, according to the New York Times, the settlement ultimately went down to $480 million. And oh, that was, those poor people. I know, right? That's about that's literally half of uh, what originally was quoted. Um, yeah. So they're still sitting pretty, but um, they are not the billionaires that they seemed poised to be uh, right when they exited the company. Yeah, and the title card's talking about what they're, you know, how they're both kind of eyeing further projects. I mean, this is the the downside of making something that's relatively recent. You know, the we the WeWork uh, collapse was in 2019. Uh, it's not really a satisfying conclusion because their stories are still ongoing. Did that feel odd to you that that was where we had to leave off? Yeah, in a way. I mean, I, I think that because... We crashed was so much about these two people. I mean, it was marketed as a love story, and I think successfully was. Um, they're still lurking around somewhere, you know. Like I think their movements have been lightly reported on um, mm-hmm. in recent the last year and a half, let's say. Um, but I don't think we know a ton, and I'm just sort of now really curious. I don't know that I necessarily need another season of the Newman, you know, yeah. saga. But but I think. I, I I don't know. I'm choosing to believe that it's almost intentional for this show, which I think has been so thoughtful about so many things, to make it feel a little bit anticlimactic. Where it's like, yeah, no, they just kind of got away with a bunch of money. That's mm-hmm. how the story ended. <laughs> you know, like yeah. there. I wish that we had a, a a tidier sort of thing about justice and whatever to to present to you, but that's not how this works. Usually, the people who, um, you know, as Masa says, the the one with all the money is the one who wins, and 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 Newman's don't have as much money as he does but they have plenty um and so they win and that's the end of that story for them yeah well did you ever see the soderbergh movie that came out last year no sudden move 
you know, uh-huh. had the like most generic title. And that, that movie ends, um, you know, slight spoiler with being like, oh, yeah, this was a whole big conspiracy with all the automakers and, and they got away with it and, and like ruined uh, the environment as a result. So bye. <laughs> no, you can do it right and have a story end with the bad people getting away with the bad thing, which is what this is. Yeah. I mean, you think about um, the Todd Haynes movie with Mark Ruffalo, uh, Deep Dark Water. Dark Waters. Right? Dark Waters, plural. Um, uh, yes, yeah. there's Dark the other Waters one with plural. Jennifer Connelly. <laughs> yeah, and then the deep water is on yeah. Um yes. But that's another one where there is a minor victory, you know, in this one lawsuit, similar to Erwin Brockovich. But the the machine of you know callous capitalism turns on, and yeah, and I think that um, I guess a little bit of that makes me question my interest in these figures because. As they, as the kids say, they stay winning, <laughs> and, <laughs> and we do not, mm-hmm. in, in almost in direct re- relationship with their victories. Other people have to suffer. Um, so I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm ready for a break uh, about trying to put myself in the headspace of uh, these particular uh, type of people. Yeah, that is an interesting idea of like, what do we move on to from here? Um, Because like there are scammer shows, there are murder shows um, there. Like, what's the palate cleanser? Either something you literally are watching or just what you want to do to to move on from these guys. I think fiction, you know, Mm. pure fiction, uh, not based on a true story. I I think that, you know, obviously a show like We Crash took narrative indulgences, as did The Dropout, as did Super Pumped. They all do. So there's, you know, we, we were served some fantasy in a way but i think i would be i'm ready and i think maybe a show like severance which is you know comments a lot on work culture but is blessedly not really set in our world um i find it a lot easier to enjoy on a simple level and um these i felt these shows i felt like i had to constantly be considering what the real world implications uh were and that that you know that made for sort of a different kind of viewing than um, I think I prefer. Yeah, something that takes you away from the real consequences of the world that we still live in. That's a really good way to think about it. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I read a I read a teen romance book last week. That felt great. Just oh, no no consequences go. on on this earth at all. No, no. Um, what was the book? I'm curious. Uh, it's called Meet Me at Midnight. I picked it up oh. at the bookstore The Ripped Bodice in Los Angeles, which uh, our colleague David Canfield took me to. Um, uh, highly recommended both the bookstore and the book. Oh, okay, good. Well, that's a, that's a good <laughs> You didn't tip. know this was going to turn into a YA podcast, did <laughs> yeah, you? Well, if people want, I published a YA novel in 2018 called All We Can Do Is Wait. You can read that. There's some romance, mostly doomed, but <laughs> but it's in there. Oh, it's got some good romance, though. <laughs> I, I, the, the parts of it that are romantic are very romantic. Well, good. Um, all right. Do you have anything else to say about uh, We Crashed or any of these other shows before we close out? Well, we're going to talk about Emmy season on Little Gold Men as we do this week. And um, as I said on this week's show, I'm going to be pulling really hard for Anne Hathaway as this goes on. So, um, you know, I hope this show continues to get recognized. I I think it does stand out from the pack of just like a tech scam show. And um, I guess it'll be our job to beat the drum for it as the season goes on. Yeah, I agree. I think it was really artfully done. And um, I think I love the score. Uh, I thought it looked great. It looked expensive, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 you know, Hathaway and Leto are obviously the big standouts, but I think all the performances were really strong. So I hope that it does not get lost in the, uh, the scammer shuffle as Emmy voters and whoever else uh, starts to assess the year on TV. Yeah, we should uh, shout out the orchestral cover of Katy Perry's Roar oh. uh, that is very prominent in this episode. And kind of beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
like I really liked it in a way that I was like, can I download that? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to get the Wii Crash. Uh, I hope it's on Apple Music at the very least. I'm sure it is. Should we talk about, uh, I mean, still watching will be on hiatus after this. Um, yeah. But I don't think, don't remove us from your podcast feeds because there's obviously always television to talk about. Um, and, you know, we're always taking recommendations for what you want to hear us talk about, too. Yeah, you can email us at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com um, if you have any ideas of what you'd like us to cover in the next, you know, the, the second half of 2022. Yeah. Um, there's some, there's a lot coming down the, the pike. So uh, I think we have options. But yeah, I we think we may only maybe, do one show next time. <laughs> I think we'll be able to do one show and maybe keep it something where we don't have to do a ton of ancillary research about the real people <laughs> and learn that, what an IPO is. Yeah. When you're talking about Game of Thrones or Succession, you can uh, kind of just shoot the shit. But uh, oh, with, no, are with you kidding? Do you know how much Joanna Robinson did so much Game of Thrones research for these shows? Well, that's, that's true. OK, I should maybe Game of Thrones. Was we not drafted off of her knowledge there. Yeah. Uh, it's more complicated than uh, the stock market, I think exactly uh well until we figure out a show katie where can people find you uh at vanityfair.com and on the little gold man podcast as always with you richard uh where we'll um well you, if you want to hear us keep talking that's the place to do it yeah and you're at katie rich on twitter i believe yes, yes. at katie rich on twitter also yes i'm rylaws and vf.com and little gold man and all that so thank you all for uh sticking with us this season uh and until we talk again happy investing <laughs>